Let's kick it off with one of the other kind of side effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, and that is more people drinking more alcohol. New research from the University of Victoria says alcohol consumption has spiked in British Columbia during the COVID-19 pandemic. My guest is Dr. Tim Stockwell from the University of Victoria. He's a professor of psychology, former director of the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hiya, Tim. Oh, good morning, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. And this is interesting research from you as always. So can you tell me what you found out here in your research about drinking in BC during the pandemic? Yeah, sure. I mean, basically, the bottom line is during um, the lockdown um, from mid-March um, right through to May, during the fa- and you know, during phase one, yeah. we drank a lot more, um, and it was connected particularly to private liquor store sales being uh, given a real turbo boost by the home delivery. Um, a facility which was the first time in BC that's been permitted for private liquor stores. Their sales went through the roof. Um, they took market share from the government liquor stores, which were already which were actually going up as well, and they more than compensated for the less sales in restaurants and bars during that period. Okay, how much has uh, drinking gone up? Could you put out like a percentage on it? Yeah, it was six and a half percent. If you just look at the pure alcohol and to put, give a sort of number to that, maybe people get their heads around it more. Normally in BC, um, we drink on average persons age over 15 are having 42 standard drinks a month. It maybe doesn't sound very much. It went up to 45 standard drinks, went up three whole extra drinks a month. For a drinker, though, if you chuck the abstainers out, it was another four drinks. There's about 75, 80% of us do drink. So, yeah, that's the, that's the order of it. But it, it's actually historically massive. It, it, we don't usually change. It just putters along and doesn't change too much. This is a really big shift. Okay, I remember at the start of the pandemic, you were signaling some concerns about potential increase in, in alcohol use and the dangers that come along with that. Does, so I'm, I'm sure in some ways you're not surprised by uh, by the findings of this. I mean, are people, what, sort of self-medicating get through this pandemic? Oh, look, I'm sure everybody, as usual, has their own reasons for, for drinking, and a lot of it's positive, and some it's to um, feel better because you're not feeling so good. I think a lot of it's economic as well, that, um, in fact, despite, you know, with all the restrictions, we had less to spend our money on, plus convenient access. You had to have a minimum quantity um, locally here. You couldn't get alcohol delivered unless you had at least 24 beers, which is more than most people buy, um, or several bottles of wine. And, you know, click of a button on your laptop or pick up the phone. It's there within, it could be minutes, um, but no, no more than hours. So convenient access, more disposable income, and loads of opportunity. <laughs> so it's fairly predictable, I think. Okay, you mentioned that there was an, a, a large surge in private liquor sales compared to government liquor stores. Why, yeah. is, why is that, do you think? We could pinpoint it very precisely. This is all based on data, by the way, on alcohol sales week by week um, during um, the last couple of years that the liquor distribution branch gave us. And we can pinpoint um, in the mid-March is when the liquor store sales, both types, government and private, just soared up. 
bit of stockpiling, bit of anxiety that maybe they'd be closed, but they weren't. And sales then dropped down for a couple of weeks to compensate, but then they bobbed up. And they, um, so it wasn't just, it was very precisely that they, there was a biggest increase for the private stores when the home delivery started, around about the 4th of April. And you could see that moment in the data. There's a massive spike. The private liquor store sales went north, but there was a dent in the government stores. They're still overall higher, but the private stores took a huge slice out of the government stores right. market. Are we um, seeing? Uh, are you seeing any indication or evidence of an increase in alcohol dependence, alcoholism, binge drinking, uh, drunk driving, all, all the kind of t- bad side effects of booze? Um, you know, it's but to, to confirm that you need the data from the hospital admissions and then you know, the yeah. death st- statistics, um, and those are always late coming out. What we do know is that when consumption in the population as a whole goes up, pretty much everyone who drinks drinks a bit more, um, and you know the number of heavy drinkers goes up, and that's almost like the law of gravity. This has been studied in. 70, 80 countries around the world, you can predict how many heavy drinkers there are if you know the number of people drinking and the average consumption of that group. And because, and the more you drink, dose response, you, you've got risks of several hundred you know, nasty kinds of illness and different kinds of injury. Um, it's pretty much like the law of gravity. When we drink more, there's more of these problems in the community. Okay. Do you think that there needs to be any kind of policy changes from government in terms of the easy availability of alcohol? You've highlighted the kind of the home delivery uh, that is so simple and easy now for most people. Is, is that a problem in, in your mind? Do you think some, anything should be changed? Uh, well, I think it, well, it's contributed to this um, increased consumption, which will put extra pressure on healthcare services at the moment. Alcohol this year in Canada will kill two, twice the number of people that COVID will. Um, It will put many more people in hospital. Maybe the emergency department situation with the lockdowns will be a a bit less. But alcohol is a a huge issue. Um, And there are things that could be done to remedy that. And it would be a really good time now to have some policies that, um, you know, the, the... It'd be a shame if this extra convenience survives after COVID has gone because we'll be drinking more and there'll be more. What? So, so you mean what? They should stop the home delivery op services? After COVID, uh, there's huge pressure from the lobby industry, lobby groups to keep it. And I'm sure some of us love it. But actually, uh, for a community decision to make it so easily available, it's bad public health. It's a bad public health and safety policy. You know, we'll, we'll do anything to avoid COVID because it's immediate and apparent and very scary. Alcohol is a quiet, silent epidemic that's killing more people, hurting more people, but we just don't think about it and we don't want to. Um, so it's bad policy to keep alcohol as conveniently available as it is now. Okay. All right. Interesting research as always. Thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. You bet. That is Dr. Tim Stockwell. He's a researcher at the University of Victoria. Alcohol consumption up 
during COVID-19. It's interesting to hear him say there that maybe it's too easy to get booze by home delivery. Maybe that should be shut down after the pandemic is over, hopefully in the new year. Talk about drinking during the COVID-19 pandemic. You heard my conversation there with researcher Tim Stockwell saying uh, his numbers show uh, consumption of booze is up uh, during the pandemic. 604-280-9898 is the number to call me. Star 9898 on yourself. Let's quickly check in with Jeff Guinard, the executive director of Able BC. They represent bars and pubs in BC. Hi, Jeff. Hey, good morning. Thanks a lot for coming on. What do you? Th- I guess it's not surprising that people are drinking more during the pandemic. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think Dr. Stockwell's uh, making some good points, but he's, he's looking at sort of the base wholesale data, right, about how people are sales. And I, I think it's we have to look at it from the other perspective, right, about how consumers are shifting. And um, yeah, I mean, I remember during the early days of the pandemic, I mean, honestly, didn't you feel like you needed a damn drink as well? Like it was a <laughs> deeply stressful time. A lot of people were home, out of work. You could not go to bars and restaurants. So we saw the sales that would normally take place in the hospitality sector shift to retail stores. Um, what do you and, think of his, what do you think of his idea? His suggestion it's too easy to get home delivery of booze, and maybe the government should shut that down once the pandemic is over. Yeah, I think when he said that was bad public policy, I think that's a, a lazy way of looking at it. I mean, we do definitely have a need to educate British Columbians about uh, and, and Canadians in general about consumption patterns and like what's a healthy amount to consume and how to how to uh, you know, consume safely and everything. But I, I, I didn't see the same result. I mean, from a business perspective, when um, consumers were suddenly locked down, I mean, you could deliver alcohol in British Columbia for, for a while. It's it's not a brand new thing. There were some policy changes made during the pandemic, but you could order from a liquor store online for the past several years. And a lot of places uh, do it. It becomes 10 or 15% of their business. A lot of places were not set up to do it. And we suddenly found all of these customers locked down at home. They were asking us to have better online delivery options. And right. uh, you'll see some places have minimum order sizes and all that. That's just because it's really expensive for us to send a driver over with one bottle of wine, right? And um, we've noticed some interesting shifts in consumer behavior as well, that instead of going into a liquor store maybe once a week to pick up uh, a product, people were shopping in the liquor store less, but they, they were buying in larger quantities. Okay, but you think, up. you think keep those delivery services in place, though? Right. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah. uh, I think, okay. it's, especially during the pandemic, right? But maybe continuing on, it's now become a way that people prefer this. Right. They order groceries online. Okay, let's take a few calls, see what people uh, think about this. Yeah. Let's go to Randy in Port Coquitlam. Hi, Randy. Hi, Mike. Hi. Yeah, I was going to say, <clears throat> your um, guest, was it, was it Stock, Mr. Stockwell there, yeah. he was totally wrong about the delivery, like your last guest here just said. Like, mm-hmm. Get the Dishes has been doing it for two, three years, and the taxis have been doing it forever okay was there limits thanks for the call were there limits though before did they lower the amount you could get by delivery though uh jeff do you know like was there a was there a, uh, a minimum delivery that they reduced so you can get like a six-pack or something um the or could you always get that uh, from a liquor store you could always do that from a pub or a bar uh or a restaurant they've added in the ability to order liquor with a meal right you can't just order um you know cases of, of alcohol you have to order with a meal from them um, but I want to be clear to you that this is uh, this is you know a unique discussion that happens in North America sometimes because we had prohibition, right? And we still seem to deal with that in some ways. Where other jurisdictions around the world, I mean, alcohol delivery is a very normal function, right? And getting takeout of alcohol from a restaurant or a bar uh, is a normal policy. And having liquor stores being able to deliver is something they've been doing for a long, long time. And it right. is not on balance led to uh, any different health impacts. People are going to consume or not, uh, and it's not simply about 
whether they can purchase it online. I mean, this the universe is quite different than it was prior to the pandemic. So now people are choosing to, you know, purchase things from Amazon and other services a lot more. So they're just caught up in that function. And as Randy said, I mean, this has been going on for a while. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Kelly in Langley. Hi, Kelly. Well, hi there. Hi. I, I, uh, yeah, well, if they're talking about, you know, bad for your health with ordering alcohol steady, um, well, the, the people are, well, don't you know that we have NFL every night of the week now, so that's part of the problem yeah. besides the pandemic. <laughs> but uh, if people are getting, uh, they're, now they're going to talk about obesity because people, uh, you know, we don't have nothing in the cupboard to, you know, make do, so we're just going to order up some uh, more fruit from Save One. So people are getting fat and then they're drinking too much, so everything's all <laughs> bad. But I think another reason for the government getting involved with this ordering liquor thing is because, of course, now the liquor privates, the uh, BCLs aren't making them much money, and ICBC misses out on all their impaired drivers charges uh, okay okay kelly thank you for that well i have heard about people maybe uh consuming too much overeating and putting on weight you know i heard someone say they called it covid19 because people put on 19 pounds too many carbs right yeah i mean people are ordering in food more often it tends to be a little richer for restaurant food and that kind of thing so i can sort of understand that uh what about in terms of the private private sales uh, more mm-hmm. private sales and government sales. I mean, doesn't the government get the same cut, like in terms of uh, income to government, or, or or is government losing out on revenue here with more people buying private instead of from government liquor stores? It's basically the same, and we, you know, if you look at it, we purchase it from government at a wholesale cost, so that they make the same revenue on that. And most of government's revenue is made on the back end, right? It goes into the post cost that a liquor retailer make about eighty-five to ninety percent of the money they make. But you. Last call is correct that the provincial treasury here in BC gets about $1.2 billion of profit off of the alcohol industry. Uh, so it is it is big business for them, even though you often see it as, as a smaller enterprise. Uh, but government still collects tax revenue, and they lose a little bit of um, you know retail store margin if they sell it in our store versus some others. Um, but you know we've had a mixed public-private system for, for decades, right? And um, although... You know, it's funny to listen to doctors talk. We'll see a massive shift between, like, um, you know, in market share from government stores to private stores. We're talking about numbers measured in percents and half a percent, right? And, um, you know, over the last several years, um, it has gone, you know, in favor of more private sales. And then there was a shift about five years ago where BC liquor stores were doing better. Now we are, it's it's just competition between the stores. That's all it is. Thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. Have a wonderful day. Okay, thank you. Same to you. That's Jeff Guinard, the Executive Director of Able BC. They represent bars and pubs in British Columbia. You will finally be able to renew your auto insurance online in May of 2022. (laughs) I think we're the only province in the country where you can't buy your auto insurance and renew it online. This is crazy. And ICBC has been under pressure for years why do you not offer this service it's no wonder people are fed up with icbc you can't renew your auto insurance online you can do like every other financial transaction of your life online you can get a mortgage but you can't you can't renew your auto insurance and now they come out today and say we're going to do it in may of 2022 (laughs) i just think that's hilarious Oh man, you know you wonder why people are fed up with ICBC sometimes, I'll tell you. May of 2022. Give me a break. Okay, let's talk about Doug McCallum's auto accidents here. Now, this this is amazing to me too. Uh tip of the hat here to CTV News. They broke this. 
Uh, Doug McCallum, the mayor of Surrey, has been in two accidents with his taxpayer-provided SUV. The city of Surrey, that would be the taxpayers of Surrey, of course, have been left with the bill. $7,000. The mayor rear-ended a vehicle back in July, injuring an 81-year-old woman. Uh, The mayor found at fault in that accident by ICBC. CTV also reporting, oh, this is interesting. The mayor was in another crash last year. It was a four-car pileup, and one of the cars, according to the mayor, left the scene, although the the police don't have any evidence of that. 7000 bucks charged to City of Surrey taxpayers here for Mayor Doug McCallum's auto accidents with his taxpayer-provided car. If you see McCallum coming, get out of the way. This guy's hell on wheels, it looks like. Let's check in with Surrey City Councilor Linda Annis now. Hi, Councilor. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. What do you think of this? I mean, people are just finding out about these uh, these accidents uh, from this CTV report. doesn't look like the city was too eager to cough up this information to the public here. Well, I think the fundamental issue for me is there's a couple of things. First of all, you know, he gets a car allowance, but he's also using a city-owned car. He shouldn't be doing both. It's one or the other. Yeah, okay. Can you explain that? So he gets a he gets an, an allowance, he gets some money for a ve- for his vehicle expenses, but then the city provides him with a vehicle too on top of that? Well, I don't completely understand the whole issue. What I do know is is that as a mayor of the city of Surrey, you do get a car allowance. And as a city councillor, we get roughly 50% of that. And beyond that, it's up to us to use our personal car, pay our own insurance, our own gas, and our own repairs. That's why they give us a car allowance. Now, the mayor, uh, uh, it seems, is getting a car allowance, plus he's also um, uh, using the city car, too. Right, okay, so $14,500 is the car allowance, we understand, and the city of Surrey also provides the mayor with a Buick Envision SUV, which is valued at about $46,000. So a car allowance, an SUV, he's been in two accidents. Now, the, the city apparently is saying that uh, the mayor was on city duties when he was driving so therefore taxpayers will get stuck with the bill here for repairing the car is that is that adequate explanation in your mind no it's not because you know all councillors and mayors are you know the reason we have a car allowance is to cover our mileage and our expenses for traveling on city business it's not clear to me um, why he would be getting a car allowance and then actually using a car and it's also not clear to me who's paying for the gas or who's paying for the repairs and certainly with these latest two accidents uh, who's picking up the repair repair tab I don't know, and I don't think it's clear to the residents of Surrey. No, it's not clear. So we did ask the mayor to be on the show here today to talk about this, and Surrey City Hall declined. Uh, the mayor declined to come on the show today, which is fine, which is his right, of course. Uh, but do you think, Councillor, that the city uh, taxpayers in the city of Surrey uh, deserve an explanation? Absolutely, the taxpayers of Surrey de- deserve an explanation. There's been one common problem through this whole uh, since the last election and that's lack of transparency if everything's good at city hall someone should come out and speak to it and say why he would be getting a car allowance and why he would be using a city car on city business there may be no problem but if there's no problem come out and explain it 
Yeah, right. Let's just give it. Tell us the truth. I mean, people can handle the truth. Just be straight up about it. Um, this it comes at a time when a lot of people are struggling through this pandemic. I mean, we've seen uh, the city of Surrey mm-hmm. in- increase property taxes this year. What was it like a two and a half percent increase? No, it isn't a two and a half percent increase. Oh. Again, that's lack of transparency. There's an item on our tax bills in the city of Surrey called a parcel tax. And it's a flatline tax. We all pay the same tax. Doesn't matter if you're living in a $200,000 home or a $2 million home. The parcel tax went up from $100 to $300 for each and every resident and business in Surrey that owns their, their property. And to me, this is just fundamentally wrong. It's hitting those that can at least afford it. If you're moving into your first condo for the first time, we all know that you're you know, living paycheck to paycheck and many people have lost their paychecks. This isn't the time to be adding an increased tax, and particularly where it could mean, depending on the value of your home, anywhere up to 15% or more. Okay, let's talk about another uh, issue in the city of Surrey right now, Councillor, and that is this uh, photograph that has been we that has been uh, surprising to the, a lot of members of the public with a member of the new Surrey Police Board, Harley Chappell, who is the elected chief of the Semiahu First Nations. Uh, he's a member of the Surrey Police Board posing with some members of the Hells Angels. What do you think about a member of the Surrey Police Board posing with the Angels? Well, a couple of comments. First of all, I have a lot of time for uh, Chief Chapel. He's done an awful lot of work in Surrey and in White Rock. Uh, but going back to the police board, um, I don't have a lot of details, but I, you know, also working in uh, the public safety field, I know there's a very significant vetting process, um, and generally that includes an enhanced security clearance. And I would have thought that the uh, province, when they did um, this process in terms of recruiting directors, that this would be included in that. I can't say whether it was or wasn't, but if it wasn't, it should have been. And I think probably for better details, it's probably best to ask Chief Chapel or the mayor, mayor, because I don't sit on the uh, police board, nor do I, you know, have access to any discussions that take place in camera or, for that matter, uh, at the board meeting unless I tune in. Okay, Harry Cha- Harley Chapel did release a statement saying that the photo was taken at an August 2018 funeral service. Uh, he also disclosed that his father, he said it's been well documented and disclosed many times over 20 plus years that his father was a member of the Hell's Angels. Are you concerned about, you know, can you talk a little bit more about that uh, vetting process? Like when people are appointed to the board or the Surrey, Surrey Police Board, do they not do a background check on them? Well, I would think that, and, you know, Chief Chapel was appointed by the province, and I would have thought as part of the process, particularly when you're dealing with law enforcement issues and public safety in a community, but, you know, like Surrey or like anywhere else in British Columbia, part of the process should have been an enhanced security clearance, and perhaps it was. I just don't know. Okay, we continue to follow this one with great interest. Councillor, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike, as always. Okay, Surrey City Councillor Linda Annis talking about Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum and two auto accidents with his taxpayer-provided SUV. Surrey taxpayers stuck with a bill here for around $7,000. Let's check in with Surrey City Councillor Jack Hundile. Hi, Councillor. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for coming on. You got concerns about this? Oh, absolutely. I think everyone should be concerned about it. Yeah. You, you got a mayor operating uh, a city-owned uh, vehicle, 
uh, and yet we don't even have the proper policy uh, or bylaw that uh, permits that uh, disclosed. I've asked for it. I've been asking from the city for the last three months uh, about uh, the details around it, yet to receive that. And then you have um, not just one, but two crashes. You have a crash or ICBC. If you look at the documentation uh, in the sketch that uh, I believe the mayor drew, it's got, uh, you know, same saying that he was rear-ended. When in reality, ICBC couldn't find anyone that rear-ended him, said it was a three-car accident and held the city responsible. Right. So a lot of questions around this. Right. Okay. What is your understanding of how this how this works? Like, how do you get a car allowance and a car? Like, an, a car allowance is normally you use the money to pay for your own vehicle's costs, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all the councillors um, receive 50% of enumeration from the mayor. Uh, so it's 50% of whatever the mayor gets. And I think our car allowance is somewhere in the area of about uh, almost 7000 a year. Well, that's to, um, to use for insurance, for gas, uh, including parking. And even if you go back and look at the disclosure from the mayor's um, uh, uh, financial disclosure in the first two years, uh, it has him uh, paying for, uh, for transit passes that are billed back to the city as well. So there's, there's not just a vehicle. There's a whole lot, a lot of other questions around this. How is this even permittable? Right. So what are the questions that you want answered? What do you think are the, is top of mind for you that the public should get some explanation for? Well, I, I go back to, to uh, you know, how is this permitted? When I spoke yeah. with uh, both, uh, both the previous uh, two mayors here in the city, uh, neither one of them were engaged in this process. And yet, where is the, that, where is the actual policy that says this is permittable? Uh, because I don't recall in the last two years we've been to council for that to even come before us. Right. Well, and, and you're talking about receiving a car allowance and a car, Correct. right? And on top of that, yeah. fueling up at the public works yard, like at the city work yard where, where you fill up these city vehicles. Uh, okay, it's a city vehicle using that, but you're also getting subsidized gas at that point. Okay. Okay. <laughs> just keep. Uh, How far gets, you want to drill down on this, it Mike? Just, I mean, it's, it just, just keeps it's getting more. Corner. It just keeps getting more interesting. Okay. So he's been in two accidents, and uh, we understand that the city taxpayers in Surrey have been stuck with the bill for around seven grand. Do you think that's reasonable? I mean, if he was driving on city business, is it reasonable that taxpayers should pay the bill if he gets into a, you know, he cracks the car up? Well, I'm a taxpayer in Surrey, and I don't think it's reasonable. Okay. You, you know, who else has that ability? I mean, there's, uh, um, you know, um, uh, there's rumination provided for the work you're doing. And really, uh, this past year, just to be realistic, during COVID, uh, there's hardly any events for, for us to go to, uh, simply because of the lockdown and, and all the other measures that were put in place. So, um, you know, you're not using that money, quite frankly, for that. Uh, so it's a bit of a gimme. But Okay. You know, where okay. is the actual documentation that says you can do it? Okay, Councillor, please keep digging on this one, and let's have you back soon when we get some more answers. Thank you for coming on today. Yep, absolutely. Okay, Thank appreciate you. it. That is Council- uh, Surrey City Councillor Jack Hundile looking for some answers here about uh, Mayor Doug McCallum's auto expenses. Like, Okay, let's pivot to another breaking story here out of the legislature with a new report out from the former Speaker Daryl Plekis. Uh, my guest is Richard Zussman, uh, the Global News reporter at The Ledge. Hi, Richard. Hey, Smitty. How you doing? I'm good. Thanks for coming on. So this report from Plekis, the former speaker, is called Unfinished Business. What is in there? <laughs> yeah, so I know you'll love this one, Smitty, and it shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone who has been following along with this speaker scandal that uh, Daryl Plekis, on his way out the door, wanted to get the final word. And so he has now submitted... 
uh, to the media a 50-page report around what he is calling unfinished business. And there are a host of new allegations brought forward uh, in this report. And again, these allegations have not been investigated or substantiated, but they are claims coming forward from the speaker. And one of them that stands out is I'll read to you a section here of the report. Sure. On February 4, 2019, I delivered a short confidential memorandum to the Legislative Assembly Management Committee, making its members aware of a new allegation I had received from a witness which raised Me Too types of concerns. Given the highly sensitive nature of the allegations and the charged atmosphere of the aftermath of my first report, I felt Lampsey was best placed to consider this information and act on it, and that a Me Too style allegation involving the legislature, or sorry, the Legislative Assembly deserved a cross party response. As far as I am aware, neither the allegations nor my memorandum have been investigated or acted upon to this date. No specifics mm. here, Smitty, on who raised these Me Too concerns. I think the, the connotations in this report are that it was a former staff member at the BC legislature to whom they are alleging uh, sexual harassment uh, yeah. is still unclear, but it is just one of the new allegations brought forward in this report. Okay, that's very interesting. Of course, that's very serious uh, allegations as well. And the fact is, though, that Plekis is no longer the speaker. So where does this go now? Does this go to the all-party committee that runs the legislature to look at? I think part of the strategy here is to put it into the public realm, because as the yeah. former speaker, uh, there would be no tools to bring it to the Legislative Assembly Management Committee. Lampsey will have to decide whether they want to consider this report as they have considered uh, his previous reports. And that has led to a workplace review. And as noted in this report, he doesn't believe that review went far enough, nor does he believe the changes have been put in place at the legislature to address those. So he's proposing reform of the clerk's position. As you know, that was the job Craig James previously held before the allegations came out. He is retired. Uh, Kate Ryan Lloyd is the new clerk. He's proposing reforms to the sergeant at arms position. There was a full report done by Alan Mullen, his chief yeah. of staff, his former chief of staff now, about how they would like to see that as a more ceremonial role and the policing aspects of the legislature be done as an independent police force. Mandating an independent speaker, that's something Plekis has spent a lot of time speaking about. He was independent the first time we've seen in a long time in BC's history an independent speaker. He has a number of pages around why that would be important. So he concludes with this. Uh, it will surprise no one to learn that my time in office has not been what I expected, Smitty. <laughs> it has yeah, been a okay. wild ride it following uh, Speaker Daryl Plekis. It has. Thank you for that, Richard. Yeah, Richard, thanks, Smitty. Thank you. Richard Zussman, who is a legislative reporter for Global News there with that latest report out from the former speaker now, uh, Daryl Plekis. I had his chief of staff, his former chief of staff, Alan Mullen, on the show yesterday who was talking about another police investigation going on into apparent tampering with the mace, the ceremonial mace of the legislature. Uh, he had said that a uh, silent alarm that protects that mace had been disabled, and he was fearful that the Speaker's office had been bugged with listening devices. They actually swept the office for listening devices. That was on yesterday's show. So, yeah, Daryl Pleck is the former Speaker. Uh, continuing to raise concerns. Let's talk about one of the worst commuter bottlenecks in BC now, and I'm talking about the aging and notoriously clogged Massey Tunnel. If you waste a big chunk of your life 
sitting in mind-numbing traffic jams at the Massey Tunnel. You have my sympathy. This thing should have been replaced a long time ago. If you think about the previous Liberal government, now remember, they started to build that replacement bridge to replace the Massey Tunnel. It was a controversial project, but at least something was getting done. People giving people some hope that it would improve. Then the new NDP government, of course, slammed the brakes on that. They canceled the project. And then they said, we're going to do a do-over here, and we'll come up with some other alternative to replace the Massey Tunnel. Maybe it would be a bridge. Maybe it would be an expanded tunnel. But it would be something. And we're still waiting now. What is the holdup? Now you've got the new transportation minister, Rob Fleming, saying it could be a decade before anything gets going to replace the Massey Tunnel. Are you kidding me? This thing should be at the top of the to-do list. Let's check in with Ian Payton now, the Liberal MLA in Delta South. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Ian. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Could you give me the update right now? Like, what's the current status of this project? Well, the current status is um, confusion. Once again, with the NDP, uh, Rob Fleming is the new uh, transportation minister. He was actually asked the other day by another media source, uh, saying, do you think this thing could actually be completed by the year 2035, which is 15 years from now? And it was radio silence. He says, well, I can't really make a comment on that. Uh, they've been telling us for ages now they're waiting for a, uh, a business plan to come forward, but they said it would be ready by this fall, and it's almost Christmas time now, and we still haven't seen any sort of a business plan by independent consulting firm as to what the plan is, what it would cost, what, what's it going to be? Is it going to be a bridge? Is it going to be a tunnel? Yeah, no, that is kind of surprising in a way, because I can understand the NDP. They said they didn't like the project that you guys did. They didn't like that 10-lane bridge that you guys proposed. They said it was too big. It was too expensive. Let's do something else. Okay, fine. But they, they obviously know that a lot of people rely on this commuter route. A lot of people are frustrated as hell just sitting in those traffic jams. So I think they kind of indicated that, look, we realize we have to do something. So to get here now with the year almost over and we're still waiting for this business plan, like when was that business plan supposed to be out? They said it'd be out by fall of 2020. And I think recently yeah. he just said a few days ago, oh, it'll be out before uh, the new year. So, huh. I mean, who who knows? And yet Ravi Kalon and a guy named Bruce Reed, who ran here in Delta, they, they made a, a public statement in a local newspaper. Oh, it's going to be a tunnel. Definitely it's going to be a tunnel. Well, that's not what we've heard. We've heard that it's still up in the air, whether the government has decided whether it's going to be a bridge or a tunnel. Yeah, no, it did seem at one point that a, an expanded tunnel was the preferred option, but now what, the bridge is back on the table? Possibly? Yeah, well, we went. there was public consultation meetings held in Richmond and uh, in South Delta about a year ago, and uh, I thought, oh, everybody's going to go to this public consultation to simply look at a, the, the plans for a new tunnel. But there was actually huge maps and plans for not only a tunnel but a bridge. So obviously the bridge is still on the table. Okay, well, there's lots of competing transit priorities and transportation pr projects around the whole region. And so, you know, some people who may be wishing for the, the Broadway subway to get built or, or something else to get built, they might, they might not care about the Massey Tunnel. Everybody wants their project to go first, but... I don't know, that Massey Tunnel should be at the top of the list, in, in my opinion. Like, Can you talk a little bit about the, the bottleneck there and, and the, the challenge that commuters have getting through that tunnel every day? I mean, is the traffic's been a little lighter during, during the pandemic, right? Has it made it easier? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, 
the traffic's been a little bit lighter, I guess, everywhere. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, Mike, we still get, uh, just a few weeks ago, there was a truck went through that was a bit too high and crashed the top of the tunnel, held up traffic for hours. There was a, a death in the tunnel with a car accident. So the minute you get a car accident or uh, any kind of a fender bender in there, it completely plugs everything up. There's, there's nowhere for vehicles to go. And, of course, I've said this time and time again, that the Delta Fire Department and emergency response people are freaked out when there's car fires or whatever down in the middle of the tunnel because of uh, air quality. And how do you get in there? How do you get fire trucks in there when the both lanes are clogged with cars? There's no way to get in there. Yeah, that'd be kind of a nightmare to be stuck in there for sure. What What is the air quality issue in there? Well, I mean, it's a dark, dingy old tunnel. So yeah. if you get into the very middle of the tunnel and there's a car on fire or batteries burning oh. up or something like that, I mean, there's... There's got to be extremely poor air quality. So no fireman is going to go in there without his Scott air packs on his back for breathing apparatus. Right. When they decided or when the NDP were kind of indicating at one point that the preferred option was another tunnel, an expanded tunnel, I was sort of surprised at that because of the environmental implications. Like if you're going to, I don't know what you'd have to do there to build another tunnel, like you dredge the river or you'd have to like work work crews and machinery in the in the in the middle of the river like so, with the sa- salmon and sturgeon in there i mean what about the environmental impact of that absolutely mike so here this is actually almost comical in today's world of envir- environmental issues i talked to ken baird just yesterday he's the chief of Twasson first nations he was the only one with the uh ability to stand up at the mayor's task force at metro vancouver and say guys i am not with you i am not voting on a tunnel because First Nations believe in the quality of the Fraser River. We believe in the, 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 the health of salmon runs and sturgeon and oligans. And there's no way in the year 2020 or 2030 or 2035 that we want to see a massive concrete tube plunked in the bottom of the Fraser River. That just doesn't work now. It might have worked in 1959, but it doesn't work well, now. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, in 1959, there wouldn't have been any kind of environmental reviews, really, to, to, to speak of, and certainly not like today. So it always seemed to me that a, a tunnel or a, a bridge would be the more environmentally smart way to go. Like, if you're working on land, I mean, would there be less environmental impact of the bridge, in your Well, opinion? exactly, Mike. And yeah. here's the crazy part of it. We had all of this done back before the election in 2017. The bridge was started. We had the federal environmental reviews done because all the pedestals for the bridge are on land. Nothing touches the Fraser River. So, you know, it was a a complete deal. We'd already spent $100 million getting ready for it with sand and widening of the highways and moving hydro lines, all these different things. And now they've decided to spend another $40 million after the $100 million that we spent to put some new lighting in the tunnel and, you know, freshen up this and freshen up that. For crying out loud, that's not going to fix congestion. And, you know, I'm, I'm from a farm background. I respect money, and people throw around $140 million like it's Monopoly dollars. <laughs> okay, so the people who are impacted by this clogged artery uh, want action. So, I mean, I'm looking at comments from the mayor of richmond the mayor of delta and they're both saying like let's go like let's get something moving here if it's going to be a tunnel a bridge at least get something going i mean what is your bottom line message to the government here well i gotta read you a little clip from the delta optimist um ravi kalon says we have pledged as the government that we will get a new crossing built quickly like 
Can you imagine? He only made that comment about a month ago. We will get a new building uh, crossing built quickly. Are you kidding me? They're talking. They can't even give us an answer for 2035. This is going to take forever. Whereas if they just kept going with a good plan for a new bridge, we'd be uh, doing a ribbon cutting on the new bridge about a year from now. Right, right. Okay, this is one we're watching closely. Thank you for coming on today. Anytime. Thanks, Mike. All right, that is Ian Payton. He is the liberal MLA in Delta South, and that's a drum that he's been beating for a long time here. Let's uh, replace that aging Massey Tunnel. The original plan, you'll remember, under that previous liberal government, seems like a long time now, uh, a 10-lane bridge over the Fraser River to replace the tunnel. Uh, should they build that, do you think? Should they build a bridge to replace the Massey Tunnel? Or do you think they should build a wider tunnel under the river? Phone me on this now. I'd love to hear from you if you routinely use the Massey Tunnel. What is that like? What is the congestion like these days? Has it gotten better during the pandemic with traffic being a little lighter? Phone me and tell me what it's like if you're a, a, a regular user of the Massey Tunnel. I would love to hear from you. And what do you think should be done to replace the clogged Massey Tunnel? Do you build the bridge or do you go with another new expanded tunnel? All right, let's get our geek on here. What a huge announcement yesterday from Disney. Wow. They called it Disney Investors Day. Four and a half hours of Disney announcements and all the new content coming from Disney. More than 50 projects announced here by Disney. Tons of new TV shows, streaming shows, movies coming out. Some of the highlights here, Marvel. You got like 10 Marvel, new Marvel series coming out. Uh, lots of new movies coming out. The big one for me, and I don't know if it is for you, but I'm a Star Wars fan, so this was interesting to me. Ten new Star Wars series coming out. There's Star Wars movies coming out. Uh, there's a new Star Wars series that will star Hayden Christensen, really, coming back as Darth Vader, the Canadian actor. Lots of exciting news here on Star Wars and Disney. Let's talk about it now with my guest, David Friend, the very fine entertainment reporter for the Canadian Press. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hiya, David. Hey, Mike. Okay, boy, this is exciting stuff. There's a lot there. That announcement just went on and on and on yesterday. What jumped out at you? Well, I, I really think the Star Wars thing is going to catch on. It just it seems like it might become a huge sensation culturally. I don't know. It's just a hunch. But yeah, it, yesterday was a big day, Disney's Investor Day. So it, there are a lot of announcements uh, that we heard about, but to keep in mind that this was for Wall Street. Disney wanted to go out there and show them there is a future for their business, even though their parks are shut down due to COVID and uh, you know the future is uncertain. They wanted to show you everything's coming out. So we had Hocus Pocus 2, She-Hulk. There was you know, if your show or your movie was in the history of Disney and they didn't have a remake or a sequel lined up, then I would be concerned that Disney even remembers where you are. Right. And this is like a, what, a 10-year plan here? This is when all these series would roll out? Yeah, it, I think it was, the runway was a little bit shorter than that, but it okay. was many, it was multi-years. They were talking yeah. about 2023. And um, I mean, they're they're trying to solidify their business next to Netflix, because really what this is about is what the streaming and TV world calls churn. And that's when you're sitting at home looking at your bill saying, you know what, I'm not watching you know this streaming service as much as I used to, so I'm going to cancel it and save that 15 bucks. What Disney wants you to think is, I can't live without what's coming on to Disney. 
And so that's the whole goal here, really. And in Canada, what's, what's coming you know, beyond those TV shows is a new um, portal, as, as we kind of call it, within the Disney service called Star. And mm. that's a whole roster of TV shows that they're putting together and a library of catalog stuff from 20th Century Fox that will all be available through the Disney Plus app. Um, and you know, with the extra stuff, you'll get a price increase. So the entire Disney Plus package is going up by 3 bucks in Canada starting next February. Wow. Okay, that's important to know as well. There is so much to talk about here. We can just barely scratch the surface of it here, David. There were so many new series and movies announced yesterday. But let me ask you about one, and this is one that jumped out at me and a lot of people, and this is this new uh, Star Wars series called Obi-Wan Kenobi and Canadian actor Hayden Christensen returning as Darth Vader. Have a listen to a bit of the trailer here. And I'll stay as long as it takes forever to witness the end. Okay, uh, this is kind of surprising because I, I remember uh, Hayden Christensen got some pretty bad reviews for his his performance of Anakin Skywalker later to become Darth Vader in, in the movies. But here he is coming back. What do you think? Well, my, my initial thought was looking at that and, and a couple other shows is once you're in a Disney project, you got a made for life like Emilio <laughs> Estevez coming back for Mighty Ducks. Wow. <laughs> Wow. But yeah, it's cool to see Hayden back. I mean, yeah, reviews were mixed, but I, yeah. I also appreciate consistency in a franchise. Right. No, that is good. That must have been a good a good day for him when the phone rang and they told him they wanted him back. I'm sh- I'm sure. Talk about a little. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other Star Wars projects that are coming out here? We got some more spinoffs of the Mandalorian, which has been very successful. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of them. And and I guess what really jumped out to me was the fact that Patty Jenkins, who directed Wonder Woman and the upcoming sequel, she's coming on for a Star Wars film. And she's the first female director of a Star Wars project, a film project ever, which kind of knocked me out of my seat because it's hard to believe that that's a first even now in 2020. But I'm going to be watching for that one in particular. Yeah, she will be directing a Star Wars movie called Rogue Squadron, which is due out in December of 2023. So a little bit to wait here, but some more Star Wars movies coming. Yeah, that, that one's pretty cool. I, Lando has a spinoff series from the, the creator of Dear White People. So I think that one in particular I, I thought might give... Um, the Star Wars franchise is a bit of a different spin than, than we're used to. For me, these franchises, if they hit the same note over and over again, they kind of get dry. So to know yeah. that there's some ideas coming out that are new seems yeah. encouraging. I think the Star Wars franchise is more evergreen to me than, than some of the other ones. I think there's potential there for these Star Wars projects to be successful. But, you know, Marvel, of course, is the other big franchise for Disney after they bought out Marvel. And uh, lots of new Marvel series being planned here. What do you think of the Marvel franchise these days? I mean, I, I guess people are just not getting sick of the comic book uh, franchise. Well, I have a bone to pick with Tatiana Maslany because she's in She-Hulk, which was announced yes. yesterday. And I talked to her like a month and a half ago when the rumors were floating around that she was going to be in it. And she told me no. So when it was announced yesterday, I was like, Tatiana, come on. You told me you weren't going to be in it. <laughs> I would prefer to no comment. Okay. And she's a Canadian actress. So that's exciting to see for her. And Marvel, obviously, Disney, uh, Disney continuing to make big bets here on the, on the Marvel franchise. How big are these? Are we seeing sort of the enfranchisement of, of mainstream entertainment? It seems like a lot of these big projects are part of even bigger kind of franchises. Yeah, that's right. And I think it kind of goes back to what I was saying about the, that churn thing is they want you to be invested. So once you're on the Marvel bus, 
if we want to call it that, you're probably going to stick around to see all the spinoffs and all the new storylines. Uh, they see it as like a long-term investment for your money, basically. But one, one other thing that I really think stands out here is the commitment to TV series. Yes. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. Um, obviously, movie theaters are the whole world of them is in flux right now and how they come out of it at the end of COVID still is a big question. Um, but with TV shows, basically Disney can make a longer movie and, you know, spend all that big multi-million dollar budget over a, more hours. So their return on what I call like the investment per hour is better than it would be for a theatrical film, theoretically. Yeah, the future does seem to be with streaming for sure. David, thanks a lot for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Thanks a lot. Okay, you bet. That is David Friend, the entertainment reporter for the Canadian Press, with the big announcements yesterday from Disney with their Investor's Day yesterday. Four and a half hours of announcements and new content for Disney. Lots of new Star Wars TV shows, movies, Marvel shows and movies coming out. That's exciting for all the geeks out there. I am among them. Let's talk about the COVID-19 vaccine now. Check out what's going on in Ontario here. The provincial government there considering adopting an immunity passport to prove that you've taken the COVID-19 vaccine. Wow. The COVID-19 vaccine will not be mandatory in Ontario. You don't have to get the vaccine. That will be the case across the country. You don't have to get it. It will not be mandatory. But the Ontario government indicating that when it is available, if you don't get the vaccine, you could face restrictions on your movements. Maybe you would not be allowed to go to a movie theater, for example. Have a listen to this. This is Ontario Health Minister Christine Elliott. Yes, because that's going to be really important for people to have for travel purposes, perhaps for work purposes, for going to theaters or cinemas or any other places where people will be in closer physical contact uh, when we get through the worst of the pandemic. So yes, that, that will be essential for people to have that. Okay, that's very interesting to hear the Ontario Health Minister uh, just spelling that out yesterday. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Brian Lilly, political columnist at the Toronto Sun. Brian, everybody in Ontario, I guess, is talking about this today. What are your thoughts on it? Uh, well, I think uh, that the way that um, Health Minister Elliott described it, that the proposal would be absolutely unconstitutional, uh, that it would wow. violate the Charter in multiple ways. It's Section 2, which uh, protects rights such as the right to conscience rights, uh, Section 6, which protects mobility, uh, Section 7, which is life, liberty, and the security of the person. Uh, I may be someone that is willing to say, yep, when the vaccine's available for me, I'll get it. Sure. But even, uh, you know, making it mandatory through coercion, as opposed to mandatory via order, is wrong. And I've spoken to several constitutional experts that say this is uh, this is uh, rife with problems and that it will end up before the court. So yeah. uh, we'll see where it lands. It, you know, it's interesting. Last weekend I had written a piece saying, look, I, I hear everyone being upset about what Dr. David Williams, our chief medical officer, said, that you might have to wear a mask if you go to a hospital or long-term care facility and you don't have the vaccine. But that's not making it mandatory and that's not infringing your, your rights in any significant way. But if you're saying that you can't go to restaurants or movie theaters uh, or just generally go about your life without yeah. this vaccine, then you are violating the Constitution in a, in a series of, 
uh, disturbing ways. No, I think there is some legal jeopardy there for sure. I was kind of surprised to hear the health minister kind of lay it out as clearly as she did there in, in the she's comments. She's a lawyer. That, yeah. Oh, okay. For sake, she's a lawyer who graduated from the University of Western Ontario law program years ago. Yeah. She should know better. So how would this work? Would you have to carry around uh, proof of immunization with you or something and, and show it to people if you're challenged? Show your proof? I, that, that may be what it is. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and, and that's what has some people concerned. There's also privacy aspects. I mean, there are people who are uh, not anti-vaxxers but cannot take this vaccine or any others because of severe allergies or their immune well, they, Hopefully they would get some kind of uh, an exemption. Yes. Well, I mean, the vaccine will not be mandatory. But if you have to have this immunity passport, as they call it, it, and there's another thing, you know, I I, I could not believe that they use the term immunity passport and that they're looking at high tech ways to track and surveil people. Okay, this is what, you know, the folks that that sound crazy on Twitter keep talking about. And you're using the exact terms. Either they're not crazy or you are way off the mark on what you should be doing. I think it's a bit of both. Yeah, but if no, you have to show this, then there's, yeah. there's real privacy concerns. Yeah, you know, no, it uh, is, you're, it you're showing like, it to a company so that you can get in the door to order food. Well, what's the company doing with your personal private health information at that point? Right. Right. I think the majority of Canadians obviously would not would not be impacted by this because I think most people will get the vaccine and there's a lot of excitement about the effectiveness and safety of it. I'm certainly going to get it. My family would get it at our, at our first opportunity. I think probably most people would, would feel the same, but a significant minority of people I, I, I expect will not take it. And to to be told that you can't if you don't take the vaccine that you will your your mobility rights would be restricted in, in uh, moving around or going places or going to a movie theater or going to a restaurant wow i mean that's just huge what what's been the reaction to that in ontario since this announcement or these comments by the health minister well there's a, a lot of different reactions some people are outraged some people are outraged that someone would be upset at the idea of an yeah some people think it's probably a good idea right some, some people think that the government should be able to force you to take it. Right, and right. And my, my view on that is it's a medical procedure. If they can force you to take a vaccine, they can force any medical procedure on you. Uh, and I don't think that's a road we want to go down. Uh, you know, I've had people say to me, well, when I go to a foreign country, I have to show them that I'm vaccinated. So okay, what's the big right. deal? Yeah. Well, a foreign, you're going to a foreign country. You're not a citizen. And the Charter of Rights and Freedoms does not apply there. Uh, so that's, that's one issue. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. Here's my concern with yeah. things like this, uh, Mike, is that, you know, John Wright from uh, Maru Blue did a poll last week, and it showed 36% of Canadians are ready and willing to uh, sign up and get the vaccine right away. As soon as it's available, 36% are there. 16% say under no circumstances will they get the vaccine. That works out to about 4.8 million Canadian adults. Wow. 48% though are saying, yes, I'm, I, I will get the vaccine, but I don't want to be first and I have some concerns. If you start talking about things like immunity passports and everything else, I, you know, I worry that it drives some of the people on the fence into that 16%. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, people could just have kind of a, a reaction to it and, and say, no, if that's, if that's the way it's going to be, I'm, I'm, I just refuse to get it. But this will end up in court. I mean, it's got to end up with a court challenge if they go there. Oh, a- absolutely. So, yeah. you know, I spoke to a guy named uh, Jonathan Lysis, a 
a well-known litigator here in Toronto. He's argued countless times before the Supreme Court uh, in charter cases. And, and, you know, he laid out, and I, I quoted him in my column, some of the, the main problems with this. So the Canadian Civil Liberties Association says, well, we'll need to see the details, but there are problems with this. Yeah. If, it's, if they come out with an immunity passport and it's very narrow, then it would probably survive. Like I said, if you're told that you must wear a mask to visit a relative in a hospital or long-term care facility, you might be able yeah. to successfully argue in court that that's an infringement on your charter rights, but the court would also most likely say it's a minimal infringement right. and therefore allowable. Right. Okay. Fascinating stuff. We're watching it closely. Brian, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. All the best, Mike. Okay, you bet. Brian Lilly, political columnist at the Toronto Sun. A lot of people talking in Ontario about this after the health minister there pretty much laid it straight on the line and said, yeah, you would have to have proof of a vaccination that you've got the COVID-19 vaccine or you could face limits on what you can do and how you can move around the province. Let's talk about fighting a traffic ticket. Have you ever fought a traffic ticket successfully? I'd love to hear your story. Maybe you got a traffic ticket you once thought was unfair. What are your options? Can you just the ticket? Can you fight back? Can you really fight the law and can you win? Let's talk about all of that now with my guest, Paul Doroshenko. He is a lawyer with Acumen Law. He specializes in driving law. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Paul. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Paul. Thanks a lot for coming on. You highlighted a ticket for me the other day. I thought this was classic. Now, this was a, a ticket that was posted by, I follow this guy on Twitter, Sergeant Mark Christensen. He's a traffic cop with VPD. So this is a classic case. They pull over a driver for driving in a bus lane. Uh, it turns out that the driver produces a learner's license, but no L sign displayed on the vehicle, no supervising driver in the vehicle. And so she got a triple whammy ticket. Uh, 109 bucks times three and here was the cherry on top she told the officer she was just coming back from failing her driving test the reason for the failure driving in a bus lane <laughs> she gets pulled over for driving in a bus lane after failing her driver's test for the same infraction i mean come on she's the ridiculous what? driver of the week <laughs> i mean can you imagine back in the day when you were a learner driver you know driving with your parents uh, actually going out and just driving on your own, I would have never, ever considered doing that. Yeah, that's amazing. So that's a triple whammy ticket. Now, there's no hope of fighting that one, I think. Uh, yeah, I think she's got a problem with that one. I've looked yeah. at the face of the ticket. It doesn't look like there's any problem with it. It doesn't, I don't know that, I mean, this says vehicle stopped. It doesn't say whether or not uh, Mark Christensen uh, actually issued that ticket. But I'll tell you, if you've got a ticket issued by him, uh, you have a problem because he's not likely to negotiate with you. He usually takes really good notes, and strangely, he seems to remember all of the facts. Every time you talk to him in the hallway, he can tell you the fact of every ticket that he's ever issued. Wow. It's a little freaky. <laughs> okay, I guess that's why he's a sergeant. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, can you negotiate a, a ticket? Like, let's say you get pulled over by a police officer. Can you can you sweet-talk the cop out of the ticket, typically? Well, you can't there at the roadside, and the best thing you can do is to not engage in any discussion because you don't want to be memorable. You don't want to be that person where there's something that you said or did uh, causes the officer to remember you and have some sort of feelings about you. You're much better mm. off to just be polite and uh, and not to engage in any discussion and be nice and say thank you in the end. Uh, and if you uh, if you think you have a defense to the ticket or you feel that there's a need to dispute the ticket, dispute the ticket after the fact uh, and go to court and then try and talk to the police officer. 
Right. So where would you talk to the police officer in the hallway well, of the I mean, courthouse? Yeah, that's what we do is we talk yeah. to them in the hallway of the courthouse. And of course, we've got you know some backing because they know that we're prepared to run a trial. So yeah. when we talk to them, they're considering all sorts of things. So that you know the quality of their of their memory, the the uh, quality of their notes, and uh, you know how long it's going to take to run a trial. Uh, can be factors that weigh into their decision making. Um, if you show up there and you're doing it yourself, then it's uh, it's uh, you know they're looking at it and saying it's more likely that they're going to succeed probably if they run a trial. So they may not be quite as flexible as they are with us, but you know they can wow. be. Depends on the officer and depends on the circumstances, and they've got a lot of things they've got to take into account. And the Supreme Court of Canada has said they're supposed to take those things into account when negotiating. This all came arose uh, when we had these uh, decisions about delay in cases. Okay, that's fascinating. And so, when you let's 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 talk a little bit about that. So, if you see a police officer in court, and this is the officer that's written the ticket for your client, so what would you typically do? Go over to the officer and say, "Look, can we can we do a deal here? Or can you drop the ticket?" I mean, what would you say to him? Well, I, I look at the at the ticket and I look at the at the notes that they've got. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I can. It's surprising how often I can spot something that's defective, something that's wrong, just right there. But you got to imagine, like myself and the people, Kyla and. Brandon and, and Emma in my office, we've done so many ticket hearings over the years that we spot the things pretty quickly right. uh, just by looking at the notes. And it's not something you're necessarily going to notice. And a lot of times the police officers don't notice it. And you find something that is uh, is wrong or recorded incorrectly, uh, something that they should have done that they didn't do. You ask them a couple of questions and sometimes they may remember things and sometimes they may not. And then there's other times that their police officers know you and they've dealt with you so many times and they know that you're straight up. Uh, yeah. you know, when you're dealing with them, that they may be flexible. But, you know, it, wow. it, it sometimes there's no room for flexibility. You know, sometimes you've issued the ticket, you know it's a solid ticket, you feel that you that you have to run it, uh, and then you have to run a trial. And that's an issue of, you know, testing the officer's uh, memory and testing whether or not they, you know, conducted everything appropriately and whether or not there's a defense. Right. And can this vary from police officer to police officer? Like you mentioned that this, uh, this officer who's frequently tweeting that I follow, we both follow Sergeant Mark Christensen, who's a sergeant with the Vancouver mm-hmm. Police uh, Traffic Unit. You were saying like he seems to be a pretty, pretty uh, comprehensive cop. Like when you see him in the hallway, do you think to yourself, oh man, I don't have much of a chance here, but maybe some other police officers are a little bit more... Uh, let's say sloppy or well i I wouldn't say sloppy i mean you know our our capacity is all different right you know one person's memory is different from another person some officers issue hundreds of tickets and and do it correctly but when the time comes they can't necessarily remember uh the circumstances they're relying on their notes and there's something in their notes that that trips them up um you know the the every one of us is different yeah Uh, and every police officer is going to be different and and some officers will have have prepared, will have read the, uh, check the person's driving record and be more flexible because they can see the person has maintained a great driving record for a long period of time. Okay. Uh, so it, it, you know, they, they're entitled to take those things into consideration. It's prosecutorial discretion. Uh, and they are entitled to, uh, to take those things into consideration when they decide whether, you know, how to resolve it. Uh, right. But lots of times the resolution is they're seeking a guilty plea, and the option for you is, okay, well, we're going to have a trial then. Okay, and what's the best case scenario for your client? Would the, the officer might say, what, tear up the ticket right there on the spot? Uh, there's times that there's officers who, you know, you meet with them in the hallway and you point something out to them, and they look at it and they say, you know what, you're right. 
Uh, I should have done that differently, and I agree there's not a substantive likelihood of successful prosecution, and therefore I am not going to proceed with it. That's the charge approval standard that we have in British Columbia. Okay, you must have a happy client on those days. Oh, yeah. Most of the time you phone your client and they're very happy. Sometimes you I phone bet. your client and they don't seem to understand what you've done for them. And it's, uh, you know, it could be a little bit frustrating, but that's the life of a lawyer, right? Thanks for coming on today. Sounds good. Nice okay, to thank, talk to you. Thank you, Paul. Paul Doroshenko, he's a traffic lawyer with Acumen Law.